Good morning, everyone. This is the D-O-L-W-3 podcast. We have been reading from The Call of the Laity by O.V. Cruz, and he is continuing to be with us today. Um, I would like you to consider today, wherever there is room, God diffuses himself. And I want you to consider what was the purpose? Why would O.V. Cruz, Archbishop in the Philippines, what and why did O.V. Cruz feel it was necessary to write this book, The Call of the Laity? So as we go on here, I want to read today first from um, a Bible reading, and this is considering uh, the question I asked, where there is room, God diffuses himself. So this is from Matthew uh, 5, 13. And it is, is considering when Jesus refers to the disciples as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then pour it, then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on the lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. So keep that in mind. You know, he's talking to the disciples, and we are, of course, disciples, and, uh, and, and why we're doing this kind of work. So also, I would like you to consider some things here, um, considering uh, what Ovi Cruz has been talking about in the last chapter that we were reading, and... Um, I went ahead and I've got the document that he has been taking some of these, uh, what he's been talking about in the book. And one of the things he brought up the other day when we were reading, this is, this is um, the instruction, and this instruction is from the Pope, and this is a document directly from the Pope, and a very important document, and this is what he's, this is what O.V. Cruz has taken uh, some of these things from the last chapter. So, the one thing I would like you to consider is this, when he talks of this, and he, he, I read this in the last chapter, and it goes like this. The characteristics which differentiate the ministerial priesthood of bishops and priests from the common priesthood of the faithful, and consequently delineate the ex- extent to which other members of the faithful cooperate with the ministry, may be summarized in the following fashion. And this is real important here. The ministerial priesthood is rooted in the apostolic succession and vested with potestas sacra, consisting of the faculty and the responsibility of acting in the persona, person of Christ, the head of and the shepherd. And just for those of you who don't know, potestas is a, a Latin word, and it has the meaning of power or faculty. Um, used widely um, in Rome, uh, illegal in in legal terms, it's it's like head of the household. So consider you know you, you know priests and bishops the head of the church. Consider it in that way, and um, you know and so here's my question: 
Can church authority use or act contrary to the head? Jesus is the head of the church. Um, and when they are acting in persona Christi, which, which they do, um, consider that. Can church authority can church authority use act or act contrary to the head? And if so, who is wearing the crown then? And are we to be obedient? Or are we to to act in a certain way when we see something being um, evil? Something being evil, and, and are we to just bury our heads? So consider that with being the salt of the earth. And, you know, salt can lose its flavor. And, and light, if it's not diffused, what good is it? All right. And we are all, the main thing we are doing here is we are, we are all growing in holiness. And that is what our charge is from our, our Heavenly Father, is to grow in holiness. And so uh, as lady, we have a big job. You know, we are, we are the salt of the earth for sure. Okay, so getting back to, so I read A. So this is B in the instruction. It is a priesthood which renders its sacred ministers servants of Christ and of the church by means of authoritative proclamation of the word of God, the administration of sacraments, and the pastoral direction of the faithful. To base the foundations of the ordained ministry on apostolic succession, because this ministry continues the mission received by the apostles from Christ, is an essential point of Catholic ecclesiological doctrine. The ordained ministry, therefore, is established on the foundation of the apostles for the upbuilding of the church and is completely at the service of the church intrinsically linked to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry is its character of service, entirely dependent on Christ, who gives mission and authority. Ministers are truly servants of Christ. And that is from Roman 1.1. In the image of him who freely took us, who took, took for us the form of a slave. Jesus took the form of a slave freely. And that's from, from Philippians 2, 7. Because the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, but are given to them by Christ for the sake of others, they must freely become the slaves of all. So I want you to consider in, in, in corruption of the church, um, things like, you know, money, money being used to pay for lawsuits brought on by sexual uh, deviance, um, by priests and bishops, and um, the abuse of power. And consider maybe who's stealing the head, of, head there. And, um, you know, what, what are we to do? And are we to walk in silence and obedience and just pray? I was told that. So um, in, in light of the church and in light of the upbuilding in the church and in light of um, diffusion, you know, and considering we are the salt of the earth and um, the light to the world. Keep those in mind today as we're reading uh, The Call of the Lady by Ovi Cruz. He is with us here today in his writings. We're going to start on page 92. The the reaffirmation. The above doctrine needs to be uh, reaffirmed specifically in the light of certain practices, which seek to compensate for numerical shortages of ordained ministers arising in some communities. 
In some instances, such have given rise to the idea of the common priesthood of the faithful, which mistakes its nature and specific meaning. Amongst other things, it can encourage a reduction in vocations to the ministerial priesthood and obscure the specific purpose of seminaries as places of formation for the ordained ministry. They are closely related phenomena. Reaffirmation of Doctrine The standing dogmatico doctrinal position of the Church as taught by her own founder, observed by the apostles, and handed down through all generations up to the present is this. Christ has shared and continues to share his one priesthood among his faithful qua laypersons or qua ordained ministers. A Christian faithful is either one or the other, never both at the same time. Christ has designed and continues to design that the mission he gave to the church should be done by correspondence and complementarity between the laity and clergy. Such would be sadly contradicted when one pretends to be both a layperson and an ordained minister at the same time. Reason. The status of the lay, the laity, and the clerical status are fundamentally exclusive in one and the same person at one and the same instance. The above mutual exclusivity is not based on the priesthood of Christ, which is one, nor on the mission of the church, which is likewise one. Much less is the essential difference premised on faith and morals, which are also one one for all the Christian faithful, viz. the laity, the religious, and the clergy alike. Rather, the doctrine is founded on the particular vocation a Christian faithful receives and responds to, viz. that to the lay state and life, or that to the clerical state and life. This distinction has intimate relevance to the previously said and explained indelible character imprinted by Christ by baptism, confirmation, and sacred orders. Can never be removed. That's my my digression there. That can never be removed. Uh, by baptism, we are imprinted by Christ. And... Um, also, uh, you know, in sacred orders, same thing. You know, it can never be removed. It does not mean, and this is a digression, it does not mean that when a priest or a bishop is act, acting um, contrary to, to Christ, to the head of the church, when he's acting contrary to it and using his authority in evil ways, that we are to be obedient. At that point, we are to use common sense and um, to act as salt of the earth uh, or light, you know, a light in, a, in an evil and dark situation. There are so many lay people, remember that, you know, and, and clergy in general. I mean, all clergy uh, and, and the lay, but there are so many lay people. You know, when we see this and we bury our heads we are um, we're useless. We're, we are useless to God. And uh, it's very important for us to understand that. All right. Numerical shortage of ordained minister. It has been noted that after the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, there has been some kind of an exodus of ordained ministers from the church. Many have renounced their solemn commitments and embraced a life that were not called for by the good Lord. 
while this is manifest reality, it is not that clear it is not that clear why such marked diminution in the number of clerics in effect took place. The truth remains that to these times there are still a number of clergy who in fact continue to leave behind their priestly life and ministry, either on their own free option or by the penalty of dismissal from the clerical status on account of flagrant violation of their solemn and definitive priestly commitment. Among the many causal factors in the practical level advanced by those who made a study on this matter are the following. One, they found out that the more materially abundant and thereby secularized a country is, the more defections of clerics were noted. Two, they traced the weakness and instability of priestly commitment to continence and or obedience to the weakness as well of the seminary formation undergone by clerics. Three, they saw a certain laxity, hesitancy, if not seemingly seeming inability on the part of some members of the episcopacy to promote and impose discipline in the ranks of their respective presbyterium. A truth, however, remains certain and certified as a verified fact in the matter of those who are really called and who truly respond to their vocation. V's time will never come when time will never come when the church world ever have no clerics to undertake the mission given to her by her own founder Christ, who is himself a priest. The reason? Christ promised to be with the people of God till the end of time. That is taken from Matthew twenty eight twenty. So God's people continuously need ordained ministers in service. Hence, few or many in number priests there, will, priests there will always be in and for the church. Church history is the enduring testimony of this fact. Priests might be small in number and would not be enough to attend to all the needs of the Christian faithful. This, notwithstanding, they remain a permanent and constant church fixture. Related Phenomena the document states that, and you know, we're continuing to read from this document that I talked about today, that he is getting this information from. You know, I, I'm going to re- repeat the name of that in case you want to look it up. On certain, so instruction on certain questions regarding the collaboration of the non-ordained faithful in the sacred ministry of the priest. And this is a document from the Pope, and it's from Rome. All right, so the related phenomena. The document states that making lay people act as clerics when they are not, or clerics acting like laymen for the matter, is definitely neither only erroneous in its doctrinal significance, but also confusing to the ecclesial community. It says that such a wrong and adverse observance is in effect related to the factual diminution of those answering the vocation to the reception of the sacred orders. This has another sad impact. The ambiguity, as well as the rational rationale of seminaries, many of which have closed down in several developed Western nations. This double phenomena may be sad, but true. Above all, above, excuse me, all the above notwithstanding, there is one distinct and rather positive result that the diminished number of ordained ministers clarified the rightful dignity and due role of the lady in and for the church continue to be discovered 
enhanced and affirmed. The church is progressively finding out what the laity can do, either on their own account or upon needed delegation by the competent church authority for certain lay functions, as well as lay ministries. This is a singular blessing for the church as a whole. The big majority of members of which are laymen, laywomen, and lay young people. The collaboration or cooperation between the laity and the clergy has gone far and done well for and in the church. While the 1983 Code of Canon Law now being observed in the universal church already has certain provisions on the said working mutuality, the magisterium of the church still continues to oversee the development of doctrine and practice about the rightful ecclesial place of the laity vis-a-vis the proper role of the clergy in the church and in society. This is much welcome legitimate evolution in the church. Conclusory Observations If one wishes to encapsulate the above-quoted pronouncements of the document and all the explanatory comments made thereon, it is simply this. All Christian faithful, the laity, the religious, and the clergy, have their respective places in the mission of the church, pursuant to their likewise respective calling or vocation from the good Lord. If there is one certain and solid lesson that the mystical body of Christ should learn and well and learn well from the course of the church history, this is that Christian faithful cannot but have divine providence closely accompanying them in the temporal world on their ongoing pilgrimage to the eternal kingdom. We are always assenting to, to heaven, assenting in holiness, growing in holiness, always learning. We are always learning um, how we can help Christ in his mission to upbuild the church. That's from me and digressing there. All right, C. And if there is something urgently imperative for the clergy to be unconditionally convinced of, it is the following proven reality. The better they witness to the priestly commitment, the more young men would would notice the significance and relevance of the priesthood, and the more inclined they become to respond to the call of God to the ordained priesthood. Okay, and that finishes um, that chapter, Uh, and we're going to go on. So we are just finishing from page 96. We're going to read a little bit from the next chapter, which is on the collaboration. It begins on page 97, and it is taken from Article 3 in the Canon Law. Direct Collaboration. Among the various aspects of participation of the non-ordained faithful in the church's mission considered by the conciliary documents that their direct collaboration with the ministry of the pastors of the church is considered indeed is considered indeed when necessarily an expediency in the church require it the pastors according to established norms from universal law can entrust to the lay faithful certain offices and roles that are connected with the pastoral ministry but do not require the character of orders in this way, it is not merely assistance, but of mutual enrichment of the common Christian vocation. This collaboration has been regulated by post-conciliar legislation and particularly by the Code of Canon Law. And understand that um, Obi Cruz here is also, you know, referring to the document, which we've talked about so far today in this episode, um, 
to the do- to to that document and and he weaves in with canon law you know both what is being said the direct collaboration every and I want to say this too everything that um Obi Cruz is saying here has real meaning and uh it's you know very important for us to uh to consider these things direct collaboration in simple words, collaboration is a working together whereby those concerned are closely and accordingly combining their efforts to, towards achieving the same and same end through though in different ways. A collaboration is considered direct when the parties working together do this with immediate tangent relationship, these with nobody else intervening between them. This kind of collaboration is at its best for unity in the work, for effectively in result, and for the satisfaction of those involved. The direct collaboration among the members of the laity and the clergy affirmed by the document has particular relevance in the fulfillment of the mission entrusted by Christ to the church. This ecclesial mission is especially attended to by pastoral work. Finally, this work of pastorate or shepherding is concretely done in line with the prophetic, priestly, and kingly mysteries, ministries and functions done by Christ, who in turn consigned them to the church. A most evident and common direct collaboration among lay people and clerics happens in the catechal apostolate. It is the form here that the following excuse me, it is from here that the following terminologies came. Catechism, which is the book or manual where the basic teachings of Christ, of apostolic, excuse me, apostolic tradition and church magisterium are written down as clearly and specifically as possible. Catechists, who are the many lay men and lay women doing the teaching, usually by the use of catechism, catechists, which refers to the methodology, the way or manner catechists teach catechism. There is also the term catechesis, which means the growth of faith by learning more eternal truths and accordingly living by them. It can be said that catechists fall into two main classifications, viz. formal and informal. The former are, are those teaching catechism after due formation, if not professional studies specifically for catechetical teaching, there are usually commissioned, these are usually commissioned by the competent church authority prior to their undertaking, their official catechal ministry. The latter are ordinarily those who do some study of the catechism, learn a certain method about how to teach catechism, and that is considered enough. In many instances, there are parents and the elderly who in their own initiative simply teach children the basic truths of the faith they, come, they came to know when they received some catechal instruction at the, t- at the time they were children themselves. It is these informal catechists who, with living faith and in great number, by and large have a big part in the mission of the church to make the gospel truth known to children and the youth. It would be futile to debate the significance and implications of the catechal work undertaken by formal and informal lay catechists. 
The truth is that a good majority of the laity live their whole life of faith and morals, premised simply on some catechal instruction they received when they were young people. In the absence of catechal ministry, there would be wide ignorance of the Catholic faith and morals in the world. In the presence of ignorance, it is hard to presume that people would love God and neighbor as they should. And when people are in such a sorry situation, the conclusion is obvious. The church is not doing her mission. She is mandated and expected to do. All right. Necessity and expediency. Even merely considering the large number of the members of the laity in comparison with the few number of the members of the clergy, it is evidently a moral impossibility for the latter to adequately comply with the pastoral obligation as the teaching ministry. This is true specifically in teaching Catholic faith and morals to children, particularly those studying in public schools. For example, in the event they go to school at all. The situation in many particular churches is such that the direct collaboration between the laity and the clergy is not only necessary, but also expedient, not only imperative, but also practical. Without lay persons ably and willingly assuming non-ordained functions and apostolic works in the mission of the church, one would have every... Reason to wonder how could millions of people know God, follow the commandments of God, show their love for their neighbors. In fact, there are communities rarely reached by ordained ministers. It is not unusual that there are people who are benefited by the service of priests only when they are baptized and when they are blessed in their funerals. It is precisely the above realities that the church, through her theologians and ecclesiologists, have found more and more ways to actualize lay ministries as well as lay functions. This development of lay agenda in and for the church is ongoing, without the least violating sound doctrine and praxis, but merely by having a better understanding about the laity. I'm going to digress here. This is what we're talking about today is, you know, remember, you know, where there is room, God diffuses. As a lay person, you may not feel equipped. You may not feel like you have the right. But in just thinking of teaching your children and your grandchildren what that means in society, what would we do without parents and grandparents um, teaching, teaching children, and, and those involved in the communities, you know, you, you may be ball, involved with um, working with the mentally ill, working with the homeless, um, you know, doing some sort of functions in, the, in society, your job. Your job, uh, you may be, you know, somehow working in the court system, working uh, with abused people. All those things, you can show Christ, you can explain Christ and talk about Christ, and, and, and you're diffusing. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light. Um, you are the light of God. Okay, so, all right. So what would we do without the lady? Who are they really in the church? Who are the laity in the church is what he's asking. What is their appropriate role in her mission of evangelization and catechesis? C, certain offices and roles. 
while the term roles is not that surprising, whereas it is practically synonymous in two functions, it is something definitely more serious when the document expressly mentions the word offices in conjunction with the direct collaboration between the laity and the clergy roles, functions, tasks, assignments, and like. Other agenda are ordinarily attributed to laypersons in the church, but the term office is something in intimately relevant and connected with ordained ministers. In general, an office is posting with expressed and formal ecclesiastical authorization. It carries a certain stability of tenure. Some well-defined duties and rights with their corresponding obligations. As such, it is freely confirmed and lost, either for cause or for lapse of tenure by the competent church authority. One thing is certain, an office already falls directly within the internal hierarchical organizational structure of the church. Of hand, the following can be herein mentioned as an exemplar of a formal office, which nothing less than the Code of Canon Law provides. In in any trial, a sole judge can associate himself with two assessors or advisors, they may be clerics or laypersons of good re- repute. That's from Canon 1424. Let it be pointed out that the, that the said lay assessors may be laymen or laywomen or one of each. Thus, it is true when so qualified, it is already possible for members of the laity to be inserted into the judicial work of the church. Such work is rightfully considered as a highly authoritative ecclesial ecclesiastical ministry, which was previously done exclusively by members of the clergy. After the promulgation of the 1983 of Code of Canon Law, this ministry remains open to qualified laypersons in the church. We're going to stop here. Um, we are on page 101 and uh, going to, you know, let some of that information um, diffuse within you. So, you know, we are, we're, we're considering this today you know, God and diffusion in respect with the lay. So uh, I wanted to read a little bit from um, a book, a book that was given to me, and it is written by Brother Joseph of Mary. And this, this was given to me, and it's on our spiritual life. And it's about our stages of prayer, um, our stages of prayer in, in our spiritual life. And I just wanted to read a little bit from you because we are talking about diffusion and and diffusing God as lay people and, um, you know, and learning to act. This book talks, you know, about about acting, you know, but about first taking it to prayer, going into prayer and get a closer relationship with our Lord. So I'm going to read from this preface first because the preface says a lot here in this book. It's very short. So... um, It begins here. The book is called The Spiritual Life, Three Stages of the Spiritual Life, The Illuminative Stage, Part 2, and this is guide number 8. He's written several several stages of the spiritual life, and um, you can can get them on um, Amazon.com. Anyways, this book was merely a pamphlet when my fever coach told me it had to be a book. It is a book about God for those who wish to see, to judge, and to act. 
and that you know that is what and this is my diffusion this is my digression um you know so important those three words to see to judge and to act and i'm especially talking and wanting you to think about if you've seen something in your church that you know is wrong and is not godly but you figure you should just be quiet and not say anything or you might hurt your priest's feelings if you bring it up. Um, this is this is what we're talking about in, in staying close to the Father. Jesus always did the will of his Father. He had friends. He ate dinner with people that he loved. He um, he had to he had to follow the will of the Father. So we can love these people and love our friends, but part of being loving is being um, truthful, truthful to our Father and what his will is. Okay, so it is a book about God for those who wish to see, to judge, and to act. The point of view is this, is from the vantage point of one who is falling in love with God. It's confused to the point of being perplexed by so many voices in conflict and simply wanting to know the truth about the big picture on mysticism and wanting to stay on the high, dry ground of uncontroverted ideas and well-worn paths that our ancestors found worthy to travel. The goal is to keep you safe and offer you guides in the form of information, people, and resources. It is set up as a quick read and merely clips of a reality much bigger and better presented in the original works of the masters on the topics of the spiritual life. Masters such as St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila. What I like about these, these little guides like this, they, they give us, um, I'm digressing here, they give us um, quick information and maybe a hunger, you know. And if, if reading like St. John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila is difficult for you, maybe this will create an appetite in you that makes you realize you don't have to be some great saint. You can be just this little person desiring to become more holy, desiring to be closer to God and how to get there. Okay, it is hoped that this map of knowledge will better orient you for a deeper read of other experts on the topic, such as the little flower, St. Teresa of Lisieux. In our lifetime, we must consider Vatican II, universal call to holiness and equal dignity as truths not available to the expert spiritual guides in the past. I hope to integrate these new concepts with the old. Again, there's that term, equal dignity. You know, you know we are all equal in dignity, and we are all called to become saints. What are saints? Saints are people practicing holiness, getting closer to God. Creation as God, original justice, divine goodness, the fall, the divine imposition of limits upon evil are all matters we will discuss in this series. Chaos as decreation, evil as the imposition of unnecessary suffering, slaying dragons, telling the truth, and living a meaningful life as being superior choices to comfort and pleasure will be discussed in this series on the spiritual life. Truth-telling as an imposed limit to evil, cleaning your room as an imposed limit to disorder, are discussed here in this series of over 10 pamphlets, now morphing into short guidebooks. And here we go, page one. 
Because God is diffusive, a deeper experience of God will be achieved in some souls. This deeper experience is not simply a wider experience. To receive God is the sole occupation of such souls. It is God alone who moves such a soul and does his work in its depths. More on this in the unitive stage. Right now we're talking about the illuminative stage. God, wherever there is room, diffuses himself, the father of lights, who is not close-fisted. He is not close-fisted. Excuse me, I, I have to back up here. God, wherever there is room, diffuses himself, the father of lights. Now, remember, this is what our question today was. Wherever there is room, God diffuses himself. So in prayer, we're making room. And um, that came from James 1.17. Who, who is not close-fisted but diffuses himself abundantly as the sun does its rays without being a respecter of persons? That comes from Acts 10.34. Wherever there is room and does not hesitate or consider it of little import to find his delights with the children of men at a common table in the world. That's Proverbs 8.31. JCLF 15, John of the Cross, Living Flame. As there was no room at the inn for Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, which is love itself, so it is with some souls who fail to make room for God in their interior life. Souls do this intentionally, negligently, or because of their failure to recognize God. They mistakenly choose lesser things for God. It is this point in the mystical theology, illumination, that the church's teaching regarding redemption from God's point of view becomes abundantly clear. It was easier for God to create man than to redeem man. Why is this so? Because man was created out of nothing and had no will to resist God. A rock, a plant, or an animal contains no free will to resist God. Only the soul can be judged as good or evil for failing to make room for God. God will dwell with anyone who lives, anyone who loves him. That is from John 14, 23. The blessed Trinity inhabits the soul by divinely illuminating its intellect with wisdom of the Son, delighting its will in the Holy Spirit, or delight, excuse me, the blessed Trinity inhabits the soul by div divinely illuminating its intellect with wisdom of the Son, delighting its will in the Holy Spirit, and by absorbing it powerfully and mightily in the delightful embrace of the Father's sweetness. That is JCLF 15. We are discussing the illuminative stage where the soul affirmatively walks with God, being clothed by clothed with virtue, gifts, and graces. It is helpful here to briefly discuss the organs of the soul. There are three, the intellect, the will, and the memory. And for our purpose, we will discuss the intellect in terms that that will assist those who love God. So it is clear that all souls can test for themselves the existence of these three organs. Consider for a moment the last time the reader was thirsty. That thirst exists in your memory. Now consider how your neighbor could be thirsty next week. That thirst is your intellect. Now reread this article when you are actually thirsty. That thirst exists in your will. 
your thirst for God. You can be likewise considered as existing in all three organs or faculties of the soul. St. John of the Cross understood the intellect as having two spheres of influence, which are the theoretical and the practical. Which spheres can be understood to have three functional divisions? That being, for our purpose, knowing or understanding, judging, and choosing. Now consider how the soul has the capacity to know what is true, judge what is true, and choose what is true. Additionally, consider how the soul can know and understand what is good. Judge what is good and choose what is good. The true and good stand for God. God made the soul this way. The dark angel also knows this, and herein lies the problem. According to St. John of the Cross, deceit is Satan's principal weapon against souls. He is known as the great deceiver. There is hope. The soul should not be afraid. The church takes serious this threat of deception against souls and understands well how to disarm it. First, the deception is limited. Herein lies the relevance of the four great passions. The four great passions are fear, sorrow, hope, and joy. Souls are to fear only the loss of God, take sorrow only in the loss of God, and hope only in God, and take joy only in God. Scripture says, where love is perfected, there is no fear. For our purpose, God includes his essence and his operations. These concepts were defined and discussed in earlier articles. So I, I want to stop here and just pause. I, I keep having this picture. There's been a lot of death on my path um, from since when I was a young girl. Um, I lost my first husband uh, at the age of 18. Um, I lost my mom when I was 23, you know, and it continues on. I lost my sister. So I don't want to get into all that. But I just want to say that in losing those things, in losing, you know, especially in grief, sometimes I think we just think God leaves us in grief. But what it's saying here is that in sorrow, you know, these are the great passions. When we leave God, when we are most sorrowful, it's time at that point to picture him looking down at the crucified son that he sent to save the world. He sent to redeem the world. His son was brutally murdered, beaten. He was this humble, beautiful soul who loved the father beyond anything and at all costs, you know, did this for his dad. You know, as fathers and mothers, and we look at our children, we can only imagine the, how horrible that is. Well, our father, that's how he looks at us. When we are in sorrow and in grief, um, it's not the time to leave God. It's the time to get closer. And so much can be drawn from that. Okay, so I'm going to carry on here. So for our purpose, God includes his essence and his operations. These concepts were defined and discussed in earlier articles. That means if God gives you his son, you take joy in Christ. If in God's operative will, he grants a marriage, you take ordinate joy in that operation of God. Nowhere does the teaching require souls to abandon their spouses, children, or empty their bank accounts. 
It is beyond the scope of this article to fully develop this, but the class of created goods contains, by definition, spouses, children, and wealth, and created goods can be possessed properly in the will of God without, without harm to the souls and the glory of God if done according to his will. Simply put, God's operation put Christ in the womb of Mary and Joseph, and the angels rejoiced at this. Their joy was in God as it operated in Mary. Imitate the church in your use of creation. The church takes simple grapes and profits from them by converting them to wine. From the wine, the church, uniting with the will of God, converts creation into the uncreated body, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of God. The church constantly elevates creation to God, thereby diffusing God in time and space. Let me remind you here, um, digressing I am again, um, that... You know, we're talking about the church constantly elevates creation. You know, this is synonymous with what um, Obi Cruz is telling us in the call of laity. We are constantly um, to work with God in the upbuilding of his church. Okay. In the unitive stage, the soul, like wine, is converted into God, not by essence, but by participation. Key word here, guys, participation. We are participating with God, our creator, in growing in holiness. And then he says more on this later. Souls at this advanced stage of the spiritual life are committed to God and will not ordinarily knowingly walk from, away from God or intentionally reject God. Lucifer knows this too. When he attempts to derail such a soul from its direct path to God and union with God's will, the four passions are invoked. Satan cloaks that which is true and good with the appearance of evil, so the soul is tricked into fearing that which it should not fear. Satan then cloaks evil with the appearance of the true and good, so that the soul will be attracted to that which they should fear and sorrow over, because souls are advancing towards God and the four great passions can be used against the soul spiritual discernment and direction become relevant. So important at this time to really check yourself, you know, with the devil trying to deceive you in your sorrow, um, making you think that God left you and why did God take this person from you and, you know, really, really um, deceiving you in your sorrow. That time, really check yourself with God. According to St. John of the Cross, a desire that is from God will grow as the soul draws closer to God. Likewise, as the soul draws closer to God, other desires, not of God, will dissipate. Preparatory to discussing simple discernment, it is wise to consider the four fields of knowledge. They are knowledge of self, the world, and the knowledge of how your neighbor views you and the world. Uh, give me a second here, guys. I'm just trying to see how much time we have left. Okay. So, simple discernment requires some recollection in God and examination of self. Does the intellect reveal light showing a way is clear? Does the intellect tell its owner that the raw material, the ability and the knowledge exist to com complete the com contemplated journey? For instance, if one were contemplating a vocation, does the intellect reveal that one has the ability to do what is contemplated? One who is blind cannot consider some vocations based on intellect alone. 
does the will reveal a desire to do or act in a certain capacity? Does the will spark at considering certain options or vocations? Are such desires closely referable to God or thought about in the context of God? Does the memory hope and take joy in certain options or vocations? Does the memory easily refer to God when considering such vocation or option? Consider the three organs as pistons. Do all three spark with desire at considering an option or vocation? Do only one or two spark? For instance, if one were considering space travel and the will had great, and the will had great desire, is the memory frequently turned with joy to, act, to activity on board a spaceship with thoughts of valor in serving God and country? At first blush, it would appear a call from God were certain, but consider the intellect and its constant nagging at how would one be able to be absent from mass for the several years in space voyage. Consider also in this soul there exists recognition that God has previously called the soul to weekly mass. Here the intellect trumps all feelings in the face of such commitment to weekly mass, recognizable as a supervening duty a supervening duty that admits in this soul no acceptable impairment. In such a case, it would seem God, God's call is elsewhere for this soul in these circumstances. Obviously, other facts and circumstances would admit of the possibility of God's call to space travel. Such discussion of human conscience is beyond the scope of this article. In conclusion, to discern if you have a call and assuming you desire it in the will, hope in it through the memory, you still must use the intellect in the ordinary way to God. The intellect presents to your heart your duties of, of life that cannot be abandoned or compromised, such as in the above example, a duty by the soul of weekly mass. Which duty this soul in the example admits for itself cannot be compromised? It also is presented in this article that the church nowhere teaches that this occupation with receiving God is limited to religious. Lay people are called to receive God too. Only at man's level of being is this occupation complete. A rock, a plant, a bird all receive their existence from God, but none can be called a child of God or ever hope to be the spouse of God by receiving God's superabundance to such an extent that they become like God. This entire article simply exposes the soul soul's use of two great powers given by God to all souls, the power to know and the power to love. <clears throat> this is so important. Um, I can't, I'm digressing here. I can't say that enough. <clears throat> in, our, in our ascent in holiness, you know, to, to our Father, um, it is so important, the power to know and the power to love. Always, always, and those two have to be together. At this stage of the spiritual life, these powers are being orientated to God in a special way. With that, I want to say, you know, we are human beings. We have the ability to reason. And in this, you know, when we reason and we're using um, the intellect, the will, and the memory, very important to really discern um, what, what you are doing, and, and young people, especially when they're discerning what they're going to do in life, but, you know, when you're discerning marriage, when you're discerning your call from God, you know, you really need to go deep in prayer and, um, 
you know, get close to God and talk to God and, and, and know yourself too, because God wouldn't put you into something or want you to go into something that you're knowingly going to hate and detest. You know, he wants to work with you. That is what the Holy Spirit gave us. We have our gifts. We all have our gifts. And God wants us to work in accordance with those gifts. Okay, so that's that's the end of that. Um, I want to talk just a, just a brief bit more. I guess they're, they're more or less some questions. Uh, let's see if I've got time to do that. Um, yeah, I got a few minutes here. Not much, though. I just, I just want to... Um, I just want to ask some questions. So, in truth, God diffuses himself. Here are just a few questions. How is God diffusing himself through me? What is God's truth in me? How can I make his truth known? How can I be a diffuser of light? How does he want to use me to diffuse his message of love and truth? Then ask yourself this. Lord, I am, or say this, Lord, I am making room for you. Come, come and be with me. Be in me. I know, Lord, that you are in me. All I have to do is turn and look and go in, in silence. God loves it when you get silent and when you look at him. He's within you and he's always watching you. All we have to do, any time of the day, whatever we're doing. St. Teresa of Avila says, um, Jesus, you, he is here in the pots and the pans. Rather than hating the job of washing the pots and the pans, see Jesus in them. See what he gave you in these washing of the pots and the pans. Okay, with that, I want to close. I want to say a, a prayer. Um, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And leave us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. God bless you all, and um, have a good day, and until the next time. Good morning, fellow podcasters. This is the D-O-L-W-3 podcast and we uh, are on episode 14. We're reading from the Call of the Laity by O.V. Cruz and he um, he wrote several books. He was a canon law lawyer. He um, looked into the misconduct of the clergy and the corruption and he wrote this book for the laity to, so that we could wake up and begin to see that we are part um, of the mission that Christ started with us and with the disciples years ago, you know, we are the Christian faithful. So um, I'm happy that he is here with us today. Uh, I just feel his spirit. And we always, we believe here in the Catholic faith that, um, um, you know, we have the community of saints and those who have gone before us. So with that, uh, I want to take a reading from, you know, today's talk. Today we're going to talk about our call to holiness. Um, and that's going to come from um, uh, St. John Paul II. Uh, it is from the post-synodal apostolic, apostolic exhortation 
Christi Fidelis Leci of His Holiness John Paul II on the vocation and the mission of the lay faithful in the church and in the world. I'm bringing that in too because he talks about some important concepts and um, this is like a hundred page document and um, oh it's so beautiful. I'd actually like to read this whole thing to you because it's plain and simple in layman's turn terms and it's so beautiful. It's so well written. So, but we're going to start with um, a reading from Scripture, and it's from Matthew twenty, and here it goes: The workers in the vineyard, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. And he said to them, You too go into my vineyard, and I will give you what is just. So they went out, so they went off. And he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. So, uh, and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, he found others standing around and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You too go into my vineyard. So I want to stop there. We stopped at um, 20, uh, Matthew 20, and we read all the way through 7. So, um, and the reason I'm doing that is because in this in this document that I'm going to take a few things from today, mainly because I want you to, you know, think of you think of the call, think of the call of what we're called to do, and and the one thing Pope John Paul II tells that I think is so important here in this document is one, um, we are to go into the vineyard, and what is the vineyard? The vineyard is the world. You know, the lay people, the lay Christian faithful, there are so many of us. I don't know how many million, billion Catholics there are, but there's a lot. And um, and forgive me for not being a person of numbers, but you could go and Google it and find out there's a lot of Catholics in the world and a lot of Christian faithful. So because of that, you know, the lay people are examples in the world to, you know, examples of Christ in the works we do, um, what our professions are, our vocations, but our most important thing, our vocation to holiness. We are to always to grow into holiness. So I've got a few things I want to read here before I read from um, Ovi Cruz's Call of the Lady. So this here, uh, like I said, is called um, The Apostolic Exhortation of His Holiness John Paul II on the Vocation and the Mission of the Lay Faithful in the Catholic Church and in the World. Okay, I'm going to skip down to you go into my vineyard too. So, uh, number two, and this, you know, again, he's breaking down this scripture that I read to you. So you go into my vineyard too. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. That's Matthew 20, three through four. From that distant day, the call of the Lord Jesus, you go into my vineyard too, never fails to resound in the course of history. It is addressed to every person who comes into this world. 
In our times, the church after Vatican II, in a renewed outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost, has come to a more lively awareness of her missionary nature and has listened again to the voice of the Lord who sends her forth into the world as the universal sacrament of salvation. You go too. The call is a concern not only of pastors, clergy, and men and women religious. The call is addressed to everyone. Lay people as well are personally called by the Lord from whom they receive a mission on behalf of the church and the world. In preaching to the people, St. Gregory the Great recalls this fact and comments on the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Keep watch over your manner of life, dear people, and make sure that you are indeed the Lord's laborers. Each person should take into account what he does and what he does and consider it if he is laboring in the vineyard of the Lord. So I'm going to digress here. So, you know, you can see that, you know, in biblical times, you know, we called it the vineyard of the Lord. Um, and, and it is still called the vineyard of the Lord. We are working in the vineyard of the Lord every day. Whether we be a stay-at-home mom taking care of our families or out in the world, you know, in professions, um, in law or uh, medicine or you know any of the any of our professions that we do if if we're a shop worker if we are teachers you know we take with us this call to holiness okay i'm going to go on to a little other section here it is necessary then to keep a watchful eye on this in our world with its problems and values its unrest and hopes its defeats and triumph a world whose economic, social, political, and cultural affairs pose problems and grave difficulties in light of the description provided by the Council in the Pastoral Constitution, Gaudium A. Space, number seven. This, then, is the vineyard. This is the field in which the faithful are called to fulfill their mission. Jesus wants them, as he wants all his disciples, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Matthew five thirteen and 14. We read from that, I'm digressing, we we read from that in our last podcast. You know, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But what is the actual state of affairs of the earth and the world for, for which Christians ought to be salt and light? The variety of situations and problems that exist in our world is indeed great and rapidly changing. For this reason, it is a It is all the more necessary to guard against generalizations and unwarranted simplifications. It is possible, however, to highlight some trends that are emerging in present-day society. The gospel records that the weeds and the good grain grew together in the farmer's field. The same is true in history, where in everyday life there often exist contradictions in the exercise of human freedom where there is found side by side and at times closely intertwined evil and good, injustice and justice, anguish and hope. And we're going to go on to another section here. I'm just kind of skipping around a little bit, but um, these were some things that uh, I just thought were part of what we're talking about with uh, Ovi Cruz and his call for the laity. So, you know, think in terms of your holiness and growing in holiness and what our call is. In giving a response to the question, who are the lay faithful? The council went beyond previous interpretations, which were predominantly negative. Instead, it opened itself to a decidedly 
positive vision and displayed a basic intention of asserting the full belonging of the lay faithful to the church and to its mystery. At the same time, it insisted on the unique character of their vocation, which is in a special way to seek the kingdom of God, engaging in temporal affairs and ordering them according to the plan of God. So that I want to digress here. So that is one of our key things. Number one, we're called to holiness. No matter what we do, we're called to holiness. And, um, and unfortunately, sometimes we're called to call out evil. And, um, and sometimes that's a hard thing to do. But, but, but the, the key here is that you seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and ordering them according to the plan of God. It's very important because when you're living in times of corruption, which has been corruption forever um, throughout the history of church, um, you know, always seek in prayer that you are ordering yourself, your holiness to what God is calling, what the will of God is for his people. The term the lay faithful reread in the Constitution on the church, Lumen Guntium, is here understood to mean all the faithful, except those in holy orders and those who belong to a religious state sanctioned by the church. Through baptism, the lay faithful are made one body with Christ and are established among the people of God. They are in their own way made sharers in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ. They carry out their own part in the mission of the whole Christian people with respect to the church and the world. Okay. And I'm going to skip to another page now. Um, This is, again, about the lay and our call. Through their participation in the prophetic mission of Christ, who proclaimed the kingdom of the Father, of his Father, by the testimony of his life and by the power of his world, the lay faithful are given the ability and responsibility to accept the gospel in faith and to proclaim it in word and in deed without hesitating to courageously identify and denounce evil. We are to denounce evil. Um, I've heard it said, uh, a woman recently said that, you know, you know, you're cursing evil or you're giving too much light to evil. Um, and my response to, to that would be no, no, we're, we're, we're called to holiness and we are denouncing evil. Yes, we are. But we're, we're, we're honoring that call to holiness. We're honoring the will of the Father. United to Christ, the great prophet, <clears throat> Luke 7.16, and in the spirit made witness of the risen Christ, the lay faithful are made sharers in the appreciation of the church's supernatural faith that cannot err in matters of belief and sharers as well in the grace of the word. We are sharers in the grace of God's word. They, uh, that's from Acts 2.17 and Revelations 19.10. They are also called to allow the newness and the power of the gospel to shine out every day in their family and social life, as well as to express patiently and courageously in the contradictions of the present age, their hope of future glory, even through the framework of their sec- secular life. Because the lay faithful belong to Christ, Lord and King of the universe, they share in his kingly mission and are called by him to spread that kingdom in history. They exercise their kingship as Christians. 
Above all, in the spiritual combat in which they seek to overcome in themselves the kingdom of sin, Romans 6.12, and then to make a gift of themselves so as to serve in justice and in charity Jesus, who is himself present in all his brothers and sisters, above all in the very least. That's Matthew 25.40. But in particular, the lay faithful are called to restore Uh, I have to digress here because I love this part, and I just think this is so important. Just really listen to what St. John Paul II is telling us here. But in particular, the lay faithful are called to restore to creation all its original value. In ordering creation to the authentic well-being of humanity, in an activity governed by the life of grace, they share in the exercise of the power with which the risen Christ draws all things to himself and subjects them along with himself to the Father so that God might be everything to everyone. Christ, you know, works in each one of us. You know, we have a prayer life with him. We are baptized and confirmed and receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And, um, you know, all these things, he speaks to us. And in times of corruption, sometimes he has to, he has to look. He has to look, and he, there's a certain way God works, and oftentimes he works with the lowly, um, people who don't seem to have much um, stance in the church or power. He works through, you know, people of poverty. Um, but one, the one thing he looks for is faith. He looks for those who are faithful to him. And we never know who he's going to call. And um, that's why we don't want to snuff out, you know, uh, a little burning wick. You know, we don't want to knock them out. We need to listen to them. Okay, the partition, the participation of the lay faithful in the threefold mission of Christ as priest, prophet, and king finds its source in the anointing of baptism, its further development of the confirmation, and its realization and dynamic sustenance in the Holy Eucharist. It is, uh, yeah, that's, I'm going to stop there. All right, so I want to get on here to the call to holiness. Um, this is this is us. This is all of us, all the Christian faithful. We are all called to holiness. What is that? Well, if you look at the saints, you know we are we are going climbing that mountain to heaven, and through that, you know we are being sanctified. We are being purified. God points out some of our sins as we go along, you know, and we we go and we have the beautiful sacrament of reconciliation, you know, and each time, you know, he's burning off some of that that stuff in us that's no good. And uh and we are made more holy, always orientating ourselves to the will of the Father. All right, call to holiness. We come to a full sense of the dignity of the lay faithful <clears throat> if we consider the prime and fundamental vocation that the Father assigns to each of them in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, the vocation to holiness. That is our ultimate vocation. That is our ultimate goal, the vocation to holiness. That is the perfection of of charity. Holiness is the greatest testimony of the dignity conferred on a disciple of Christ. The Second Vatican Council has significantly spoken on the universal call to holiness. It is possible to say that this call to holiness is precisely the basic charge entrusted to all the sons and daughters of the church of a, by a council, which intended to bring a renewal of the Christian life based on gospel. Uh, that's 41. 
Not sure what that means. It's something that he got the disinformation from. Okay, this charge is not a simple moral exhortation, but an undeniable requirement arising from the mystery of the church. She is the choice vine whose branches live and grow with the same holy and life-giving energies that come from Christ. So beautiful. She is the mystical body whose members share in the same life of holiness of the head who is Christ. She is the beloved spouse of the Lord Jesus who delivered himself up for her sanctification. Jesus, you know, that's what he died for, for us, for this church, for the, the building of the body of Christ. The spirit that sanctified the human nature of Jesus in Mary's virginal womb is the same spirit that is abiding and working in the church to communicate to her the holiness of the Son of God made man. It is ever more urgent that today all Christians take up again the way of the gospel renewal, welcoming in a spirit of generosity the invitation expressed by the Apostle Peter to be holy in all conduct. That's from 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 15. The 1985 Extraordinary Synod, 20 years after the Council, opportunely insisted on this urgency, since the Church in Christ is a mystery. She ought to be considered the sign and the instrument of holiness. And that is why, um, dear friends, that we don't look at this as um, portraying, you know, just evilness here. You know, as it was said, um, we're not. We're not just, you know, talking of the evils in the church. We are talking about orienting ourselves in our church to God. Sometimes, you know, the church needs correction. And that's what we are called to do. We are called to use our voice. It's not darkness. No, it's it's shining our lights. It's bringing out what is evil and, you know, finding that infection and healing it, you know, bringing it out, making people aware that this is not what God intended for his church. He did not intend for children to be raped and molested. He did not intend for the vulnerable to be kicked to the street. No, this is, you know, this is what we are called to do. We're not focusing on the evilness. We're focusing on holiness. Okay, we're going on here. Men and women saints have always been the source and the origin of renewal in the most difficult circumstances in the church's history. Today we have the greatest needs of saints who we must assiduously beg God to raise up. If we are, I'm digressing, I'm digressing here. Um, if we are um, called to become holy, and each one of us, as we work on our, our we're saints, we're saints to our Lord. And we, and as long as we continue to work and orientate ourselves to his will, you know, why would St. John Paul to tell us that we need saints and we need to beg God to raise them up? We don't know who that saint would be that, that um, you know, will help us and aid us in this, um, you know, call to, to create um, and to grow our church in holiness and upbuild God's kingdom. Everyone in the church, precisely because they are members, receive and thereby <clears throat> share in the common vocation to holiness, in the fulfillment of the title, and an equal par with all other members of the church. <clears throat> the lay faithful are called to holiness. All the faithful of Christ 
of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. All of Christ's followers are invited and bound to pursue holiness and and the perfect fulfillment of their own state of life. The call to holiness is rooted in baptism and proposed anew in the other sacraments, principally in the Eucharist. Since Christians are reclothed in Christ Jesus and refreshed by his spirit, they are holy. They therefore have the ability to manifest this holiness and the responsibility to bear witness to it in all that they do. And I think that's an important turn. I'm, I'm uh, digressing here. We have the responsibility to bear witness to that Holy Spirit within us. Okay, the Apostle Paul never tires of admonishing all Christians to live as fitting among saints. And that's what we need to think of ourselves. You know, sometimes we just as soon bury our heads and, and just say, well, we'll let them take care of it and we'll let those take care of it. But, you know, is God calling you, you know, to take care of something? Very important and very important on our, on our, in our role to, um, to advance the kingdom of God, to become more holy. Life according to the Spirit, whose fruit is holiness, Romans 6.22 and Galatians 5.22, stirs up every baptized person and requires each to follow and imitate Jesus Christ in embracing the Beatitudes, in listening and meditating on the Word of God, in conscious and active participation in the liturgical and sacramental life of the Church, in personal prayer, in family or in community, in the hunger and thirst for justice, in the practice of the commandment of love in all circumstances of life, and service to the brethren, especially the least, the poor, and the suffering. So that ends that section on our, our call to holiness. Um, again, if, you know, if any of you are interested in this and want to look into it more fully, um, it's called the uh, Postsynodal Apostolic Exhortation of His Holiness John Paul II on the vocation and the mission of the lay faithful in the church and in the world. It's about a hundred-page document, but uh, I am definitely um, very interested in this document. Uh, it just goes along and complements with the call of the laity uh, by O.B. Cruz. All right, with that. I'm going to check the time here. Okay, I'm going to read from the call of the laity now so that we can continue on with our, with our understanding of, of what the laity are to do in the church. We're going to start on page 102, and we're going to be talking about rights and duties of the Christian faithful. Now, again, we're going back to the documents and the canon law, which um, O.V. Cruz kind of intertwines throughout his book, um, bringing the two together. When the document speaks of the rights and the duties of the Christian faithful, it is making reference more specifically to the provisions of the Code of the Canon Law, as expressed in Canons 208-223 CIC. I also want to say to you all, uh, digress here, any time that you have a question about the Canon Law or something going on, you can Google it and, and look up the law um, or just, you know, um, you can find the law, uh, canon law book and, you know, search out what, you're, what it is that you're looking for. Among other things, it would be good to observe that the said code carries instead the following title, The Obligation and Rights of All Christian Faithful. 
going to digress here real quick. Um, as if anybody is like me, I for so long was involved with my family and my grandchildren and in, in raising and working and cleaning and all that. And I didn't get um, I didn't get involved with a lot of this. And when I look at these things now, and I, you know, and I just can't help to say that there is so much beauty in our faith. There is so much beauty in in the Catholic faith. And, you know, to think that we're just seeking out darkness. Oh, no, no, no. There is such beauty in, um, in the faith and its teachings and orientating ourselves to God. And what is God? God is love. God is knowing and God is love. In addition to the fact that the code then makes reference to the laity, the religious and the clergy as the composite whole of Christ's faithful, it nevertheless legislated first on their obligations, only thereafter about their rights. The document, however, has adopted the standard way of expressing substantially the same reality, although it speaks first of rights and thereafter of the duties of the laity. Without delving into the intricacy of the difference between the approach of the document and the code of canon law, as well as the distinction between duties, <clears throat> excuse me, I got to take a drink here, folks. It's that allergy time of year, so I'm sorry for, for those interruptions. Okay, so canon, as well as the distinction between duties and obligations, at this juncture, it would suffice to say the following practical note. While people of today are very conscious of their rights, they seem to be conveniently ignore their obligation and duties. And I want to digress here. And that is so true. I, I read this last night and I was thinking, you know, so many of us, you know, today we're so concerned about our rights, you know, you know, the gay rights, the um, the Latin rights, the black rights, the Indian rights, the, you know, the white rights. I mean, there's just rights, 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 rights. And, you know, we have to think of ourselves as people of God. And what is our duties? And what is our obligations? You know, if people focus more on their obligations and duties to to make a better society, to um, to grow in holiness... What a different way and different take we could have on all of these things. You know, we've always had um, things to work on in this in this world, and serious things. Serious. So, should we stop working on them? No, um, but in some ways, we need to seek um, unity. You know, and and I think as Christian faithful, we can do that. Whether, you know, by our numbers alone, we can do that in society by carrying ourselves as people of God. That is why there are innumerable quasi-organizations, movements, and pursuant rallies in promotion of rights, but almost nothing is said about obligations and duties. Would you agree with that, everyone? Would you agree that we are really concerned as societies just looking for our rights rather than what our obligations and duties actually are? The Code of Canon Law might simply want to forward and emphasize the importance of obligations without, however, really ignoring the significance of rights. Reason, one follows the other. You pretty much have to do both. You can't just seek out your rights and not um, be obliged to do your duties with them. All right, B, the rights and duties of the lay faithful. Like the Code of Canon Law, the document then speaks of the rights and the duties of the lay faithful, in line also with the subsequent 
codal provisions on the obligations and rights of the lay members of Christ's faithful. Needless to say, the focus here is the nature and consequences of being a baptized layperson in the church, viz. what they are entitled to do, as well as what they are obliged to do in and for the church. In other words, the subject concerned is categorically the laity in the church, viz. what are their rights and duties in accordance with their canonical lay status in the church. They acquire this status by their reception of the sacrament of baptism, According to church doctrine and law, baptism confers upon the recipient a status or stand or standing as far as the mission as far as her mission and pursuant organizational structure is concerned. The said spiritual and juridical status definitely carries certain rights and duties therewith, just like any secular civil status. Among the more signal rights attributed to the lay faithful in the church is that their is their acknowledged freedom in evangelizing secular affairs by making these more human, more reasonable, and fair. And among the more manifest duties of the laity is the mandate to strive so that the message of salvation can be known and may be accepted by the people the world over, considering that the lay faithful are also among all people and all over the world. Capability of admission to functions. You know, and I, I'm going to digress here. I, for, I forgot to tell you that, you know, what chapter we're on, and I, I should um, go back to that, because we are on, um, in Article 2, the University and Diversity, which did begin on 87. So, all right. Let me make sure that's correct, too. Excuse me. For just one minute here. Uh, I want to make sure I'm giving you the right information. I am. Okay, so university, unity and diversity, Article 2. All right, bear with me. Um, all right, the capability of admissions to functions. There is a distinction between functions in and for the church that laypersons have. Those that the lay faithful can and may assume by right as a baptized person in the church, and those that they are considered doctrinally and canonically capable of having and thereby ex exercising by the expressed assignment, commission, delegation, or deputation by the component church, the competent church authority. In simple words, there are functions which belong to the members of the lay faithful that are already theirs by doctrine and law, and those who, which they may have when explicitly given them by those who, by doctrine and law, too, have, to, have the confidence to do so. As examples, to evangelize people is a role that is already theirs by being baptized persons in the church. To administer church Temporalities is a task that can be theirs only when they are duly authorized by the competent church authority concerned. The thumb rule in making this distinction is, is the functions or ministries or offices that belong to the clergy categor categorically by virtue of their reception of the sacrament of holy orders are exclusively theirs. 
So, you know, I'm sure you all know, but I'm going to digress here. So, you know, the priests have their holy orders, you know, and they, you know, they they can um, give communion, you know, the sacraments of anointing, um, where we cannot go in and do those things as lay people. If doctrine teaches and the law provides what ordained ministers do and not really do on account of their sacred ordination, may be then assumed by or given to the members of the laity. So, you know, again, he's talking about, you know, we go into the world. I mean, we are out in the world daily with our neighbors and the people around us in our work environment and in our community activities. We have duties, you know, um, to be, you know, to be growing in holiness, to be Christ-like in, in what we are doing. And, and that's evangelization. That's light. That's salt to the earth. All right, number three, correction of abuses. Where the existence of abuses or improper practices have been established, pastors will promptly employ those means considered necessary to prevent their dissemination and to ensure that the correct understanding of the nature of the church is not impaired. In particular, they will apply the provided disciplinary norms to promote knowledge of and assiduous respect for ecclesial communion. Where abusive practices have become widespread, it is absolutely necessary for those who exercise authority to intervene responsibly so as to promote communion, which can only be done by adherence to the truth. Communion, truth, justice, and peace, and charity are all interdependent realities. N4. Abuses or improper practices. The document makes mention of abuses or improper practices in general. For example, without the least giving concrete examples thereof, because each would not be needed, in, in principle, such misdeeds or malpractices can and do happen when the functions of the clergy are illegitimately, illegitimately exercised by the laity and vice versa. When this happens, the victim thereof is not only the truth, but the canonical ecclesial distinction between the laity and the clergy, but also the imperative of order and discipline in the ecclesial community. Very important to have order and discipline. That's how God created the world, right? He did it in order. We have to keep a certain amount of a certain order and discipline um, to each of our calls of the lay faithful. And the, you know, all the faithful, I meant not the lay faithful, but the Christian faithful. All right, B, correcting authority. As there is a hierarchy in the church, a foremost ministerial obligation of which is ecclesial governments, there is also a ranking among the church authorities who have the burden of correcting the above set abuses or improper practices when and where existence. That is to say, depending on the extent of such misdeeds or malpractices, the church authority with the burden of correcting them is the one immediately concerned in the place where the violations of the church doctrine and law exist. The parish priest for the, the, parish, priest for the parish, the archbishop for the archdiocese, the national episcopal conference for the country, the supreme pontiff for the universal church. So as you can see, there's a chain of command. Um, but not without saying, now let's just say you're a lay person in the church. You see something evil, you bring it to your priest, and he basically tells you to shut up, be quiet, and go pray. Um, 
that's when, you know, if you go to your priest a couple of times and you, you talk to him about that, that's, you know, not according to church law, that's when you have to take it up a you know, step. So you first try to talk to your priest and then you go to the bishop and you can take it farther if, if need be. But, but remember, you have a voice and priests do err. They're not infallible. Um, they're human like we are. All of us are human and we have a tendency to do evil. So always keep that in mind, you know, you don't just have to leave. Okay, promotion of communion. You don't just have have to leave, but again, we're talking about obligations and duties. We have rights, but we have obligations and duties, and we have to remember that. And you are not to be obedient to sin or to evil. Promotion of communion. Unity, community, and communion. These are the progressive essential features of the church with her unity. The church is one in faith and morals throughout the world. In the community, the Christian faithful have their sense of belonging, affiliation, and solidarity as one composite people of God. Through her communion, which is the culmination of her unity and community, there is intimate Christian relational harmony, love, and peace. The standard enemy of communion and so of unity and community, consist in ecclesial disorder and indiscipline. These precisely take place when there are abuses and improper practices, particularly when some members of the Christian faithful do what they should not or not do what precisely they should do in the matter of functions and roles and offices. I want to digress here. Um... One of the things that was coming to my mind is is peace. There is a real sense, you know, and we have to be careful because one of the things that can happen is you can you can have a false sense of peace. So and when I say false sense of peace, when you see something evil and you ignore it and you just say, well, I better just pray about it, um, and especially after you've gone to talk to your priest, because you don't want to be a person that you might consider stirring something up. But if it's from God, you will have peace. You will have peace in your heart, peace in what you're doing, and you will feel like you're not going against your conscience. You know how when you toss and turn and you've done something wrong, and until you write it, well, you got to be careful when you're saying, peace be with you in church, peace be with you, make sure that your peace is orientated to the will of God. Okay, so with that, I am going to stop here on page 106, and we'll pick up with the, the practical conclusions um, in our next uh, podcast. Uh, I would like to, um, again, thank O.V. Cruz for writing this book in the many writings, which I'm looking forward to reading more of his um, publications, and of the great St. Paul too, St. John Paul too. Thank them both so much, and we ask them to be with us in our time here um, in reading these, these things and giving these podcasts for the people of God. That's what we're all about. We are, we are our small voices here, um, wanting to get the voice of the mission of the church out, and um, and loving God's people, all of us. And we all work together in unity. And with that, I'd like to say a Hail Mary. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our of our death. Amen. And again, keep in mind that um, the one thing that I think in the scripture today, remember this in your call of the laity, you go out into my vineyard too. Think about what that means in your call. God bless you all, and until the next time we get together.